Nonviolence isn't weak. It's courageous. I would say if, you, if you're going to make peace in the world, if you're going to love across enemy lines, if you're going to agitate to get to, a, to the table uh, to, to, to ultimately reconcile as we solve the ills of the world and the evils of the world, then you have to be committed. You have to be courageous. And that means that things are going to be messy. I'm Erin Wilson, and this is a special bonus episode of Love Anyway, a podcast by Preemptive Love. We'll be back next week with our last regularly scheduled episode of season four. But this conversation is too important to wait. Ahmaud Arbery, a black man, was jogging in a southern Georgia neighborhood on February 23rd when he was chased gunned down and killed by two white men. Only after a graphic video of his killing was recently posted online and a wave of public outcry followed, did authorities move to press criminal charges more than two months after he was shot. The story is all too familiar and all too common. Men and boys losing their lives for no other reason than they are black. Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile. These are a few names you might recognize, though there are countless more. And now there's another, Ahmad Arbery. So we're asking, what do we do in this moment? How do we respond? Can we possibly hope to end violence somewhere else in the world if we do not confront the violence in our own communities and in our own hearts? For some of us, this is not an easy conversation to engage. We'd rather do anything than confront the fear and prejudice that still lurks all around, and maybe even inside us. But for many of our neighbors, for many members of this community, this conversation is literally a matter of life or death. For the past two episodes of the Love Anyway podcast, we sat down with Tony Collier. Tony leads our gatherings program here at Preemptive Love, working to build the world's most diverse community of peacemakers on the planet. You heard her quote Martin Luther King Jr., another black man who was murdered, as inspiration for the peacemaking work that she leads. You heard her passionately lay out the case for gathering with those who are different from you to heal what's tearing us apart. But here's something you might not know about Tony. She is a black woman married to a black man in Georgia, the same state where Ahmad was murdered. Both she and her husband Sam have been actively involved in helping faith leaders and justice organizations respond to the killing of Ahmad Arbery. And both have firsthand experience with the kind of white supremacy that resulted in his death. Podcast producer Kayla Craig had a conversation with Tony's husband, Sam Collier, they talked through what the killing of Ahmad brought up for Sam. Just a side note, this is a stripped-down conversation with minimal editing. It's important to us that you hear Sam's voice. Here's Kayla's conversation with Sam. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. So before we get started, I think of you as Tony's husband because I get to work with Tony. But the truth is you really are doing a lot of amazing, incredible peacemaking work on your end. So for our listeners who might not 
yeah, recognize your name. Can you give us a little bit of a background into who you are before we kind of dive deeper into this conversation? Yeah, I mean, first of all, excited to be here. And uh, <laughs> Tony is amazing. I'm proud to be uh, her husband <laughs> and thought of in that way. I was born born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. So my dad had a barber shop down on Auburn Avenue. Mm. Uh, they call it Historic mm. Auburn, where the civil rights movement took place right across the street uh, from the King Center was the barber shop. Um, the SCLC was right down the street, which was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was Dr. King's only organization that he created. And then when he passed, uh, Coretta Scott King started the King Center. Um, as you know, in, in honor to him and his life, it's where now both of the tombs sit above ground on the pool. Wow. Uh, Coretta Scott King and also uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Bernice King is now the CEO of the King Center, and she is a close friend mm -hmm. and has been a mentor for a long time. I think just my connection to civil rights and to just understanding all of this. You know, it started when I was really young and it, the, the significance of where I grew up didn't kick in until uh, I got into ministry full time. So I started off with uh, a really large church, Bishop Eddie L. Long, New Birth um, in Lithonia, Georgia, about 25,000 members. Out of that place, I went to Andy Stanley and I've now been friends with Andy Stanley and a part of the North Point culture and system, and as a voice, as a speaker, as a host, as quote unquote, I guess a consultant or influencer for the last seven to eight years. And out of that, started working with organizations like Orange, Orange Conference, Orange Curriculum, uh, Vanderblumen, which is one of the largest Christian staffing agencies, done some work with Catalyst and all types of things. Got a new book coming out uh, with Baker Publishing called A Greater Story. It's available for pre-order right now. I gotta do the shameless plug, I'm sorry. <laughs> I spent a lot of time working with majority white organizations, um, helping them um, transition. And when I started, a lot of them were majority white, but now um, they've become much more diverse. Um, so it's been exciting to navigate that and to merge all the worlds together. Can you walk me through your experience when you first heard about Ahmad and then just share a little bit? about what that propelled in you and in your soul to um, do and to bring others in with you. I'm trying to remember where I was when I first heard about Ahmad. I think I was laying down <laughs> at my house. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'll be honest with you, I did not take it super seriously at first, partially because uh, it's become so common these stories. So for me, I just said, you know, I'll check back in with it tomorrow, see what's going on. And then it started getting bigger and bigger. And I said, okay, I got to go watch this video. I watched the video probably 10 to 20 times. And then, oh um, because for me, because I'm in the justice space and because I spend so much of my time consulting leaders, white and black, how to think through it. And obviously me and, uh, Dr. Bernice King, uh, MLK's youngest daughter, we talk immediately after all of this stuff. So I have to be really informed on what's happening. And uh, because we've seen so many unarmed black kids, teens, adults be shot over the last couple of years, and this has been such a hot topic, the desensitization of these things has just set in. So I can watch it, you know, it's like, all right, well, and I need to. So 
I watched about 10 to 20 times because I need to see every angle. I watched another angle. I watched another angle. Then I read a bunch of articles. Then I had a lot of leaders calling me that were informing me on articles that they read and they read and they read and they read. And after I had fully digested what happened, then I said, okay, here we go. I wish I could say it was new, but, um, you know, it, you know, it was just, you know, horrific as, as all of these things are. And, but I really do feel like this, this moment specifically will serve as a catalyst for uh, a shift in America. On one hand, this is a moment in which there's been so much education, I believe. And then all of these shootings and the, the police brutality and all of that in America and black people just, you know, and minorities being getting, you know, I, I use the word, this is not a word, matter and matter, you know, angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. I, this is a horrible term, but I think it was a perfect storm um, of a moment in which now that you've been educated, now you have an opportunity to respond. The criticism of the white uh, evangelical space, the white moderates, the white Republicans, the criticism um, has been, you know, as Martin Luther King said, you know, it, uh, it, it was not the hatred of the racist that bothered him the most. It was the silence of the people that he thought was with him. And so it, that's been the criticism that white people, white moderates, white Republicans, even white Democrats who agree have been silent. And so now I think over the years we've been really just pushing it. Hey, let's get loud about this. Let's talk about this. Let's be you know, bold. Um, I think now this is the moment, a perfect moment in which over the years it's like, OK, now we have a big one. This is clear. Where, where are you? So I think the education is the first reason. I think the second reason, and this is the, what most people won't like, is that there was not an officer involved. Usually, as I've done talks on race around America, specifically around police brutality, specifically around unarmed black men, specifically around all of these things, the people that get up and walk out of the churches or the organizations are predominantly law enforcement. About 90% stay with you through the hard conversation. About 10% will get up and walk out. And about 80% of the 10% is law enforcement. They do not like these topics. And I understand, you know, from their angle, I get it. They're like, you're not a police officer. You don't know what it's like to be in the field. You don't know, you know, what he was going through. And some, for some, you don't know what it was like, what it's like in the hood, right? And they just feel attacked. They're like, you know, we're, we feel attacked. Like, why would you come after us? And and a large part of this, and, and, and let, me, let me go ahead and say it, there are some great officers out there. We know that. But I think the understanding and the realization and the acceptance that there are some officers that are not good is something that has been very difficult for the police force to deal with. Even though we know that historically it is true that the, you know, the origin of law enforcement was rooted in slavery and they were created to discipline slaves. 
And so we know that there's a history of racism within the law, within the law enforcement community. But yet today it's very difficult for many of them to embrace that there are some bad apples in the bunch. So I want to say again, because law enforcement is always a hot topic, I want to say again, there are great officers out there. There are phenomenal officers, but there are also some bad apples in the bunch. With that being said, law enforcement really pushed back really hard in America around these issues. I mean, it's really difficult for a lot of white leaders and a lot of white spaces to um, make officers feel bad, right? I mean, it's something that feels that really challenges them. It's like, man, because for them, they've been taught that officers were created to protect them. And so with that, it's like, wait, you want me to go against the very people? I, like, they've not done anything wrong to us. They've protected us. While on the flip side, you know, African-Americans have been taught a little bit different. So because there was not a law, because the law enforcement was not involved on this one, this was an ex-cop. He was not a current cop. I believe white people, especially white leaders, really felt compelled that, oh, this is, I can speak up more, <laughs> you know? I'm not going to get penalized as much. I think a ton of white people have been just trying to figure out how, when to, they want to be loud, but how, how can we be loud with the least amount of resistance? I'm really, really glad you shared that. Thank you. I am a white woman who is raising a black son. I've never shared that on the podcast, but I have two black children through adoption. And I thought, okay, I get this. I went to college. I took classes on race. <laughs> you know, my ignorance knew no bounds. Now my heart feels like it could shatter into a million pieces when my son rides his bike. And knowing that as he gets older, there are conversations that I'm going to have to have with him about my complicity in a system that benefits me because of my white skin and vilifies him and hurts him and suppresses him and, you know, even eventually could kill him. And that's just something that I am learning and lamenting with you and learning from you. And I just thank you for, you know, the emotional energy and labor that you are putting into this, especially going the next step to bring along people who don't look like you, people who are benefiting from the system, white people, to bring them with you and to guide them. Many white leaders will ask me, you know, what can I do to help, right? Once it clicks in their minds, there's a problem. And that, you know, this whole idea of white privilege, which white people hate this term, <laughs> hate the term white privilege. Um, and I understand why for them, it, it seems like you're taking away their hard work and their struggle, but we're actually saying something different. So I've actually re renamed it white at opportunity <laughs> so that people can really understand what I'm saying. It's like, no, what we're simply saying is you have gr a greater opportunity because you're white, because of how America was created. And so with that being said, when, when, when leaders really embrace it, white leaders, and they go, ask me, what can we do to help? I say, well, you know. The best thing you can do is leverage your opportunity, your privilege to uplift the black race. That's the best thing you can do. Put us in position to create wealth. Put us in position to create influence.
when we talk about this idea of racial justice, you know, um, I sit in a space that's in the middle. It's a very hard space to sit in, but you need people. And what many people don't understand is that Dr. King sat in the middle. Dr. King had influence with the government and with the president and with people that made laws that were on one side. And he also had influence in the black context. And he was able to stand in the middle and create a bridge so that we could actually get some things done. I always say in every movement, you have three things. You, you've got agitators, you've got negotiators, you've got reconcilers. And usually the three of them don't like each other. So which one, which one are you? I'll say this. Dr. King was all three. And so I try to be all three. I think in this day and age, I land a little bit more on the negotiation side because I, I don't think we have a lot of negotiators. I think we have a lot of peacemakers or you know, people, oh, let's just, let's just, you know, let, I don't see color. You know, I don't, let's just stop talking about it. Let's just come together. Come on, come on, come on. Those are like just the people that just want to reconcile. Um, and I, I think you got a ton of agitators who are like, man, but all oh, y'all, you need to do, you know, and, and we just end up fighting all day. Um, but you have very few people that sit in the middle and go, all right, I hear you and I hear both sides. Now let's address this and let's, let's, let's come to grips with this. Let's understand what each other is saying and create change. And so I don't stay in the negotiator seat. I do tend to live there for a while and then I move over into action and reconcile and, and all these other things. And every now and then you have to agitate. I mean, in order to do it well in these spaces, you have to agitate. You know, agitation just isn't tweeting a, a wild, you know, a crazy tweet. Agitation is also sending a text message to a powerful leader challenging his belief system. So one of the things we say at Preemptive Love is we belong to each other. I think Tony has the shirt. You know, we love we love this. I'm wondering what this statement brings up in you in this time? We belong to each other? Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, <laughs> what it means to me is the Dr. King quote that we are, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. And I can't be who I'll be until you are who you are being. You can't be who you are being until I am who I ought be. It, you know, we belong to each other means, you know, I think it means that we were all created in the image of God. And the reason that tension exists within race and the reason why we've been able to progress even from slavery to civil rights is that we know that there's something wrong when we're not connected. We know that. We don't need a dictionary to tell us. We don't need a school book to tell us. We don't need a preacher to tell us. We don't need a motivational speaker. We don't need an activist. We know, all of us know, that when we're not together, something is off. Something is wrong. And it's because we've been, we've been tied to one another. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to one single garment of destiny. It means our destinies are interlocked that who we are supposed to be at the highest level is found in connection and in unity with one another. And so when I often talk about diversity, I often say that God is, is realized and seen at his fullest when we are one. Not when we're separate, but when we're one. When, when you have all races together, now we're a complete picture of what God is. 
because we're pieces of him. One of our values at Printed Love is to press into pain. And it seems like you do that um, a lot. And it takes a lot of vulnerability. I'm wondering uh, for our listeners, um, specifically our listeners who are not a black man in America, if you could share a story for your life, if, if you're comfortable, about a time when you really experienced this. I mean, you have a resume that is like, 55 pages long. <laughs> You're so impressive. You are just a, a, an awesome human. But as we've seen and as we kind of talked about, some people will only see you alone, you know, on a walk, on a jog, just because of the color of your skin. And I wonder if there's a story you would share with us if that ever happened to you. Oh, wow. You know, you normalize your trauma, right? I think. We as humans learn to normalize it so that we can deal with it, so that we can grow through it, right? I mean, you it can't be traumatic forever. And, you know, I think for so long, being Black in America is who I am, um, that you you learn to deal with the pressures and and you learn to deal with the reality that you're in. You accept it, but then you also rise above it. And you know, so you learn to live with being followed around in the grocery store and being followed around in any store, you know, any going into a small town and at night wondering if you, you know, if you need to go back inside, you know, I mean, there's, there are certain parts of Georgia that I, I'm just, I'm just not comfortable in after, after a certain time, there are certain parts in Alabama. I'm definitely not. I mean, there are pieces of Alabama that I will ride through. And I'm nervous the whole time, the entire time. I'm going, please don't let me run out of gas in this city. <laughs> right? Like, these are things that I put in place just no, just as a, you know, normal, as a, as a normal thing in my life to just protect me as you, you know, accept the reality. These are probably things I'll have to teach my son um, as, as he's moving. Well, hopefully, hopefully America's better, uh, much better. And, and, we, and we've better than, and we're better than, we've, than we were. Hopefully it's much better than when I have my son. But, you know, I th these are just things I put in place. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, before I drive through certain cities as I travel, you know, I, I will not drive through certain cities without a full tank of gas. It's just not happening, especially at night. I'm going, I will not be caught on this side of the city at a certain time. And, I mean, I've been pulled over. I've been profiled. I mean, I've been, I mean, all of that. You, I think you just learn to live with it. Now I will say there was a, there was a very promising moment that I had, and I believe it was, um, and, and I believe the Lord spoke this to me. It was a moment after it was maybe about a year or two or maybe three removed from the Trayvon Martin situation. And then we've had, you know, the Michael Ferguson's and so on and so forth, the shootings in South Carolina in which law enforcement, you know, has been forced to really just look at systems um, and, and, and find the bad apples that are in the bunch. And I got pulled over and I was coming from a certain, from a certain city. And, and I know that they pulled me over because I was probably in driving a nicer car and, 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 and just, you know, black and the police walked up and I looked at him. He looked at me 
I, I don't know what happened, but when he got up to the car, he was the nicest he had ever been. I could tell. He just, I had never experienced, he was a white cop. I had never experienced a police officer that nice. All of my interactions with law enforcement up until that point had been very aggressive or nerve wracking. Like, Lord, let me just, I just got to get out of here. But this cop on this day, and I don't know what it was. I, I, I have to believe that it was the result of all of this that we were going through in America. But he walked up and you can tell he was intentionally showing me respect and I think attempting to change the narrative. I hope people hear that and just hold your stories and we just appreciate those. So as our time is kind of winding down, I just wonder if you could talk to the people who are listening right now, people who want to make that step from peacekeeping into peacemaking what would you say to them in this moment? You know, we have listeners from all around the world. We have Christians, we have Muslims, we have just a wide, beautiful variety of, of people coming together, believing in the power of choosing to love anyway. I wonder if you just have kind of like a final word for our listeners today. Yeah, I would say the first principle of Kingian nonviolence from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., part of his six step or six principle, philosophy, and then six steps of Kenyan nonviolence. The first principle is nonviolence is a way for courageous people. Nonviolence is courageous. And the idea of nonviolence is that, that you would not be violent towards others. You would also not be violent towards yourself. So it's rooted in this idea of love, but it's a philosophy for peacemaking that each and every one of us has to choose to be nonviolent in our lives to be loving in our hearts. And a part of delivering love to a society across enemy lines requires a commitment to nonviolence because it, it, it isn't love that gets in the way of us creating peace. It's violence. And there are many forms of violence. There's hatred. There's bigotry. There's discrimination, right? There's prejudice. All of those are forms of violence. There's emotionalism, you know, anger, all, all of that. Those are forms of violence, not to mention war. So I think we have to be committed to nonviolence as a way of life, as a mentality. And we're not, I think when people hear that, they hear, I'm not going to be fighting people physically. No, nonviolence is more of a mindset and a mentality. It's, it's rooted in love and unconditional love. But also not, nonviolence isn't weak. It's, it's courageous. And so with that being said, I would say if, you, if you're going to make peace in the world, if you're going to love across enemy lines, if you're going to reconcile, if you're going to agitate for the purpose of negotiating to get to, a, to the table, uh, to, to, to ultimately reconcile as we solve the ills of the world and the evils of the world, then you have to be committed. You have to be courageous. And that means that things are going to be messy. And I think a lot of us expect it not to be. And so because we have this expectation of re the remaking of the world being an unmessy process, when things get messy, we get gone. <laughs> and we, we, we have to be committed to persevere through the mess, which means we have to expect the conflict. We have to expect the perseverance and we have to expect the weight. And if you can be committed to fighting through the tension of misunderstanding each other and fighting through the tension of not wanting to forgive each other, 
and loving anyway, you can do this thing. But you got to be courageous and you have to be committed to a lifestyle of consistent change and love and perseverance. This is Tony Collier, the gathering director here at Preemptive Love. And I wanted to get on here and just wrap up our conversation today because, I mean, something absolutely devastating happened in our world. I mean, if you've been scrolling on social media or reading the news, you have seen it. It didn't happen yesterday or last week. It happened months ago. A man named Ahmad Aubrey was murdered in the middle of the day, jogging through a neighborhood. And right now, there are thousands of people, millions of people that are hurting, that are sad, that are fearful for their lives just because of the color of their skin. If you are a person that has been directly impacted by this tragedy, we want to publicly say we are sorry. And we are standing with you. And we are standing with your family, with your children, and we are sorry. Now, there are some people that are listening to this right now, and maybe you're asking yourself the question, what does this have to do with me? It's not directly affecting my subgroup, my part of the world, my community, my ethnic group. Well, here's what we want to say to that. Here at Preemptive Love, we believe that we belong to each other. We are all connected by one thing. And that's our humanity. The pains that we share, no matter what they look like. So, if you're asking yourself the question, what does this have to do with me? Or maybe you've taken a step further and you've asked yourself the question, what can I do to help? Well, we want to help you be a person that leans into pain, even if you don't experience the pain yourself. Number one, We want you to listen to people that are not like you. People that are experiencing pain and moments in history that may not directly impact you. What does listening look like in this context? Well, it looks like you leaving your biases in the parking lot, checking your beliefs and ideals and thoughts at the door, and listening for the purpose of understanding and validating emotion. Number two, we want you to try your best to understand what's happening in our world while honoring the dignity of those that are different from you and those that are impacted by it. Maybe that means not sharing your thoughts that could be offensive. Maybe that means while you're talking to a friend, in this case from the African-American community, honoring who they are. Number three, We want you to understand the power of apology in moments like this. A lot of people may think, well, what do I need to apologize for? Or I didn't do anything to harm this person. I didn't pull the trigger. I wasn't in that neighborhood when that man was murdered. Well, sometimes we get to rise above what we've done personally and take on the effects of people that may look and believe like us who have caused the pain. Sometimes it's just about apologizing for how a person feels and what they have experienced. And last, we want you to put your love into action. We don't know what that looks like for you and where you're at right now, but it may be you sitting down with your family and watching the news about this, reading captions of hundreds of African-American people who are hurting right now and just leaning and learning and watching and pressing in 
Maybe for you, it's reaching out to a person of color and apologizing and saying, I'm sorry. Maybe it's posting on your social networks and saying, I'm ignorant, I don't understand, but I want to, and I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to be a better peacemaker. Maybe it's getting more information on how you can be a part of our Love Anyway gatherings or virtual workshops where we're meeting monthly with people from all over the world to learn and grow together. We're putting practical steps into place with accountability and support. Whatever peacemaking looks like for you, we want to remind you that peacemaking starts with you. And the actions that you take today help to end the next war before it even begins. It helps to create the more beautiful world our hearts desire. For us, for our children, and for the people that inhabit the world after us. If you wanna be a part of our peace efforts today, right now, please text the words, teach me to 72,000. That's teach me to the number 72,000. Hard conversation, but these are the kind of conversations we need to have in order to change our hearts, in order to change the world. If you're a white listener, please don't let anger be your highest response to injustice. It feels powerful, but in the long term, it's not very productive. We have the chance to listen, learn, and change. Until next time, I'm Erin Wilson, and this is Love Anyway. Love Anyway is a podcast by Preemptive Love. It's written and produced by Kayla Craig, Ben Irwin, and me, Erin Wilson. Skip Matheny is our digital production director. Ben Irwin is our audio editor for this episode. Jeremy Courtney, Jessica Courtney, and J.R. Prashal are executive producers. Our theme music is by Roman Candle.